This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure, go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. 1,500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. 500 years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And 15 minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you'll know tomorrow. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome aboard wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whether it's fastening your hurricane shutters or trimming the wicks on your lanterns or taking a break from filling sandbags. I hope you're safe and sound as we have Hurricane Sandy uh, getting ready to bear down. Uh, welcome to, uh, I guess, the Halloween edition of The Conspiracy Show. We're still a few days away from Halloween, of course. On Halloween, it's funny, you know, we typically tell ghost stories, and most ghost stories begin with, it was a dark and stormy night. Uh, well, we've got that part of, uh, uh, of it right, that's for sure. We're going to be talking about raising the dead uh, tonight, but it's not really what you think. Sorry to disappoint. We're not talking about conjuring up the souls of the dead or cadavers rising up out of the grave. We're actually going to talk about the ancient Egyptians and something called spiritual alchemy, a metaphorical raising of the dead, if you will. Ancient uh, temple cultures such as the Egyptians recognize the body as a vessel in which the soul is trapped from its divinity. And although the person lives and breathes, their spirit is anesthetized, so their view of the world is narrowed to what can only be touched by the five senses. And such people thus were considered to be dead. So sit back and get ready to learn all about the ancient Egyptians and the art of raising the dead. Freddie Silva is one of the world's leading researchers of ancient systems of knowledge and the interaction between temples and consciousness. He's also a best-selling author and filmmaker. He lectures internationally with keynote presentations at the International Science and Consciousness Conference and the International Society for the Study of Subtle Energy and Energy Medicine, in addition to appearances on the History Channel, Discovery Channel, BBC, video documentaries, and radio shows. He's described by the CEO of Universal Light Expo as perhaps the best metaphysical speaker in the world right now. Freddie Silva, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? Uh, pretty good, Richard. And uh, we were just uh, talking off the air. I was asking you, uh, you know, what it's like down there in Maine, where you reside, of course, supposedly. I mean, you're in the path of, of Hurricane Sandy, and you say, what, it's, it's dead quiet? It's absolutely dead quiet. I mean, it's so still, you can't hear anything. It's the water. I mean, you can see reflections off the water. It's, it's so beautiful. And, uh, well, you know, these things have a way of just manifesting off to, to the sea, so that would be nice, because I just armor-rolled the car. 
<laughs> God forfend anything should happen to the S. Yes. Isn't that always the way? You armor yeah, all, and then here comes a hurricane. Yeah, I'm very right. proud of my Mini Cooper. It's a very small car. <laughs> <laughs> I love the Mini. Gotta love the Mini. Uh, it is, uh, of course, the uh, we're, we're approach, fast approaching Halloween, and uh, uh, you know, I, I put the the notice up on my webpage that we would be, we would be discussing. Uh, the art of raising the dead, and of course that started the chats and the emails. And oh, we're going to talk about zombies. No, 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 not so fast. <laughs> this is not about zombie worshippers. Uh, this is about the Egyptians and spiritual alchemy. Let's uh, and and what they meant. We'll, we'll get into this. What they meant by raising the dead. But let's start with some definitions. Alchemy. We we hear the word uh, in in alchemy, chemistry. Now, is there a relationship between the alchemy of the ancients, and modern-day chemistry. In a matter of speaking, I mean, uh, what the Egyptians were always into was uh, double entendres and metaphors. Uh, what you saw wasn't necessarily what you got. Uh, it was almost like the Christian ethos of uh, Christ talking parables. And uh, the ordinary people, uh, basically, or the ones who were without, they said, uh, they would hear parables and interesting stories, but the ones who were within uh, are suggesting that they were part of a, some kind of a, a group who was, you know, privy to something. The stories meant something else. And uh, when you start looking at how the, uh, all of these stories eventually end up in ancient Egypt, uh, it seems that the Egyptians were doing exactly the same thing. And uh, so when they, uh, you look at the origin of alchemy and where it all comes from, and you follow the trail through the Greeks who were studying in uh, the library in Alexandria, and, uh, you know, essentially they, uh, they uh, borrowed everything from the Egyptians and they gave them credit, of course. Um, if you look at the origins of the name of Egypt, uh, the Arabic name is Alchem, and that's where the uh, origin of the word alchemy eventually comes from. So, in a way, when you're studying alchemy, you're studying matter that comes from Egypt. And uh, what the Egyptians originally were into in terms of the alchemy wasn't necessarily a nuts and bolts uh, alchemy as we would know in the Middle Ages where you turn metal into gold and that kind of thing. Uh, if you're looking at, looking at it from their perspective in the Egyptian culture, it was about a figurative transformation. And it was all to do with uh, the ancient mysteries where people who basically had uh, the ability to learn the mysteries and the, what they called the knowledge, they would somehow be transformed by this knowledge into a, a sort of a self-empowerment. And they would slowly stop uh, totally associating with their animal nature and they would be transformed into gold. So the metaphor is quite obvious. It's, it's nothing to do with the, uh, the transfiguration of, of metals, but more to do with the transfiguration of the individual. So that they basically come to shine as a star, they would say. Um, people would basically go from associating with uh, just ordinary uh, objects, everyday life, material possessions, and they would be transfigured into light beings. Uh, essentially, they would learn the alchemy of the, of the gods, they called it. So it was really to do with the spiritual transfiguration of the individual while they were still alive. They wanted people to, to wake up from this strange sleep that we continue to be in today, sort of stumbling through life, not really conscious and, or living in the moment. Is that, is that basically it? Oh, pretty much so. And if you look at a lot of the um, the secrets that the Egyptians had, and they've carved a lot of this understanding on their uh, on their walls of their temples, and uh, even when the the Templars were digging below the temples of Jerusalem, and they found the scrolls that the Essene culture had written, and also the Dead Sea Scrolls that they were found in Qumran in 1947, uh, you look at all of these connections, and they seem to point to the same principle that uh, the, uh, there was a certain group of people who knew something uh, that was very special to the point where it was always considered a sort of a secret club 
and the only thing that they were hiding was uh, information. They had some kind of information whereby you'd, uh, the initiate or the candidate would be allowed into an inner group after a year of observation. Uh, in other words, they would keep an eye on you and they'd make sure that you were someone who was reliable, trustworthy. So after you basically uh, made sure that you proved yourself, then you'd be asked to, in, uh, uh, you'd be invited to join an inner group whereby the parables were no longer parables. They would explain to you what these stories were. And that's how you started your uh, sometimes up to 10 years initiation into these deeper mysteries of what we would describe today as esoteric knowledge. And uh, that's what basically uh, separated the, uh, the living, people who basically uh, were totally alive and awake from those that they described as the walking dead. Uh, even the Egyptians recognized that the, the, uh, the, the body that we have and we're born with is basically a vessel. And uh, that vessel uh, is essentially a carrier of a soul, and the soul is immortal. And for them, they recognize that once you're trapped in the body, that uh, you are basically dead. They call them the walking dead. And so that's where the comparison to the zombies comes in. Uh, but they basically were people who were just totally unaware. They seemed to think that uh, life was basically getting up at morning, going to sleep at night, uh, having your woman or your man, and uh, toiling in the fields and uh, eating, drinking, and uh, working, sometimes killing. And that was all. You just died and went back to the earth. But uh, as far as they were concerned, they seemed to be uh, tapping into something different. Uh, they seemed to have some kind of an antidote. And their antidote was to get you through this uh, torturous process of uh, initiation over the course of many years to get you to understand and to see that you can have an, a, a deeper understanding of the mysteries of the universe, uh, how uh, the stars work, how nature functions. And after that, they took it a stage further where they would take you into uh, initiation chambers. Uh, usually they were uh, below the, the temples. There's still quite a lot of those uh, around in Egypt. And uh, there you'd have a sort of a shamanic experience whereby you'd uh, sort of ingest a certain drug and uh, they would basically put you in this sarcophagus-type structure. And during the course of the night, uh, after a bit of training, you would be able to guide your soul to go into all kinds of strange uh, environments. And hopefully, by the time the morning sun rose, uh, you would be awoken and then uh, you'd be guided out of the temple. You'd greet the morning star and you were uh, said to be risen from the dead because apparently you would come back with certain insights as to how the universe really works. And that's what gave them self-empowerment to suddenly realize that they don't have to be beholden. It sounds like they were, being, they were being instructed on how to astral travel. Is, is that accurate? Oh, that's pretty accurate, yes. I mean, it's just like uh, some people describe having a shamanic journey in the jungle with ayahuasca. Uh, it's a very controlled way of allowing the soul to escape the body for uh, a few hours. And uh, if, you, if you're prepared how to uh, undertake that journey, you don't just sort of disappear and go off with, with the fairies. You actually set yourself certain parameters before you go into this sort of deep sleep, whereby you do a sort of a, a guided meditation. And uh, because you are so focused on what it is you're asking uh, of the spirit world, then hopefully you are trained to come back with specific answers to specific questions. And that was very uh, useful because you could solve all kinds of problems and you could literally have a communication uh, with, uh, I would say, the spirit world. Now, the, we hear so often uh, about the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Uh, what, I mean, how does that book um, sort of go along with what these mystery schools were teaching? And, or, were they talking about the same thing in, the, in, in, the, in the, uh, the, the ancient Book of the Dead, the Egyptian Book of the Dead? 
Yeah, it was pretty much the, uh, the, uh, 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 the resurrection rituals were pretty much part of the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Uh, it's actually a mistranslation. Uh, the Egyptian Book of the Dead was uh, uh, sort of called that during the Victorian era because the Victorians were obsessed with uh, just looking at the very linear aspect of Egyptian culture. And for them, it was all about death, about embalming. So that's why they called it that. Uh, it's now been rewritten uh, and renamed in light of new understanding as the Book of Coming Forth by Light. Now, that puts a completely different spin on it, uh, because when you look at it from that point of view, it means that you're actually being taught something in order to awaken to some kind of light, some kind of enlightenment. So it's, uh, it wasn't so much the physical death that the Egyptians were so concerned about, at least not originally anyway. Uh, I think eventually, like every major culture, they would eventually lose the plot, and then they would do things without really understanding what they were doing, just like we all do today. But originally, the book of coming forth by light was an instruction of, of how to actually experience the resurrection while you were still alive. And even the early uh, Jerusalem church of the early Christian movement, which, are, which was a very Gnostic uh, movement, which is all based on Egyptian principles, uh, they too also understood that principle, that it was all to do about receiving resurrection while you are still alive. All right, Freddie, so hold on. We'll uh, take a time out when we come back. Uh, I want to get uh, further into these mystery schools and, and uh, these illumined ones. I'm, I'm wondering whether... Uh, this might be the source of, of uh, the Freemasonry and uh, the Illuminati and, and so forth. We have a certain, a certain perception of uh, the Illuminati, but perhaps we were misguided. Freddie Silva will set us straight as we continue to discuss the legacy of Egypt, spiritual alchemy, and the art of raising the dead. Right here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind. On The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. We're back with Freddie Silva, the legacy of Egypt and the art of raising the dead. We're not talking zombies. We're talking about raising a consciousness and uh, becoming an illumined one, I suppose, would be a fair way to describe it, uh, Freddie. But uh, there's that word, illumined, illuminati. Uh, are we talking about the same thing when we talk about this mystery school and what would later become, uh, you know, the, the, the Bavarian Illuminists, uh, the Illuminists uh, and the Illuminati? Is it the same uh, origin? Originally, yes. Yeah, it's just like Freemasonry. I mean, it, the origins of Freemasonry can now be very accurately uh, traced back to the uh, initiatory processes of uh, Pharaoh. Uh, I believe he lived at about 1500 BC called Secondary Tau. Uh, and uh, the authors of the Hiram Key did some very good research on bringing that out because they, as Freemasons, wanted to understand why they were doing these uh, very uh, unusual rituals, which no one seemed to explain why they did this. And uh, it was the third degree of Freemasonry where you are figuratively risen from the dead, from a grave, that suddenly started their whole ball rolling. And the same thing also happened to me when I was conducting the research for my uh, current book on the, on the Templars. The, uh, I kept coming across all of these references to the initiates who kept talking about how I want to come into the joys of paradise. And I thought, what, what are they talking about? 
uh, it seems so incongruous with the understanding of Templars, but once you sort of link the Templars as being the uh, precursors to Freemasonry, because all of their systems of initiation were identical, uh, then it was just a matter of finding out, well, where the Templars get this idea from about suddenly being indoctrinated into the joys of paradise. It seems to me that the people who are trying to join were experiencing some kind of illumination of some spiritual kind. Uh, and it pretty much was. Uh, once you start looking at how the uh, the Masons also uh, took their practices all the way back to this Egyptian pharaoh and what was happening in this guy's court, uh, then it becomes very obvious uh, that uh, there was a system whereby the pharaoh would be uh, spiritualized. He would undergo a ritualistic uh, death where he was basically indoctrinated into the mysteries. He'd be put into a underground chamber or a sarcophagus, and then in the morning he would be risen, whereby he'd come totally uh, to the other total understanding of how everything works and he would be shine as a bright star and all of these processes are now found in the uh, degrees of, of uh, speculative freemasonry because just like the uh, early illuminati there are different branches of freemasonry which some people use it for right action and some for not and uh, i have my own fair share of friends of mine who are uh, freemasons who will tell me that uh, there are obviously certain branches of uh, this uh, very wonderful sect who do things in the very old tradition uh, for very spiritual reasons. Um, but then there are also those who, of course, use it for rather nefarious purposes. It's, it's just energy. It's, uh, it's how you use the information, and the energy will direct the actual, uh, you know, send the direction into either right action or wrong action. So just like you have the Skull and Bone Society uh, in Yale, who, of course, uh, I think we, most of our listeners know all about that. Yes, uh, they yes. They to use these things for very nefarious purposes. Yeah, the initiation uh, involves uh, you, you, you're, in a ca you're in a coffin. I think they lock you in a coffin. And, uh, uh, I mean, we don't know everything that goes on in there, but some of it sounds rather nefarious. So you're, you're saying that there is sort of a dark side to these mystery schools. Uh, it, it, there is, because eventually it comes down to having a, an experience, and uh, you have this incredible enlightening experience, and it can make you very drunk. I mean, I've been through the same process myself without even realizing what I was getting into. Uh, I, I, I mean, I've been learning the mysteries for years, slowly delving into it, experiencing it. I've, I've had my experiences in the Great Pyramid, too, without even requesting it or understanding that it was going to happen to me. And I can tell you, it can get to your head. I mean, you, can, you do get a sense of self-empowerment. Can you tell me about that? What happened to you? What happened to you? Well, it's a very interesting story. Um, I work with a small group of people, uh, uh, one of many, many groups who go around the world uh, fixing sacred sites. Uh, it's our charge to... Uh, fix the things that people have messed up. <laughs> it's like we got like the garbage keepers of the spiritual world. Uh, we pick up spiritual garbage. And uh, we tend to go around the world quietly just tuning things up uh, by a process of uh, guided meditation, uh, channeling of light, uh, very old esoteric stuff. Uh, it's, uh, it all sounds very new age, but believe me, it's, uh, it's very, very important. And it is very profound once you've experienced it. And um, we were in Egypt on this particular occasion, and we, our group had not succeeded in getting uh, direct access and uh, private access to the Great Pyramid. There were some strange political undercurrents at the time. So about, I think 16 people of our group had to stay behind, and only four of us managed to get into the Great Pyramid. And there was uh, the usual plethora of people running up and down the Grand Gallery. There was kids shouting, and of course the place is so perfectly fine-tuned that even the pin will uh, you know, reverberate throughout the entire building. So it was very noisy, and uh, we got up to the uh, King's Chamber, 
And suddenly everybody vacated the entire building. You couldn't hear a thing. And we thought, well, let's seize on this opportunity and do the work that uh, we've been told to do. And, you know, we took some time for ourselves, focused. And uh, at that moment, the lights went out and we were in complete darkness inside this enormous building. And uh, we felt, you know, kind of of calm about it, uh, even though you're in the middle of this massive uh, building full of blocks all around you. And uh, we began to tone, which is the art of basically uh, tuning into a certain environment, finding out a certain note uh, that just resonates with the building. And we began to tune this. And as we began to get into the rhythm of it, in complete darkness, I opened my eyes and I can see people coming out of the rocks of the actual chamber. And it was not unnerving in any way. I mean, I felt so, it was one of the first times in my life I actually experienced this sense of unconditional love. Uh, it was a sort of a ring of people, very tall, uh, very slender, dressed in the most beautiful white satin. And uh, they just sort of surrounded us. And uh, I just looked at them with my eyes open in total darkness. And I just kept toning and uh, coming up with notes I've never been able to do before or since. And uh, after about 15, 20 minutes, it was hard to tell how long it was going for. They seemed to just retreat back into the stones, and um, we took turns uh, sitting inside the uh, the sarcophagus. And this is where it gets very strange. Uh, oh, think- now it gets strange. <laughs> <laughs> For, before you proceed, Freddie, I have to ask you. I have to ask you this question because you had mentioned earlier that in 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 uh, this initiation, uh, as part of you know becoming the, an illumined one, there is uh, some. Uh, drug taking. W- was there any ayahuasca or any sort of equivalent involved in your episode? I have to ask. Uh, no, there wasn't. In fact, I find it actually, uh, for me, it actually imp- impedes the process. Even alcohol, I find it very hard to actually uh, in- overindulge because it really does stop your ability. And I think it's, um, and again, I'm talking from direct experience where I was taught that the more you go to these uh, sacred spaces around the world and temples, uh, your body acts like blotting paper. You begin to soak up some of this energy. And if mm. you're doing it correctly, it keeps building up your resistance to much finer frequencies. And I, I, I'm out at a point now where I can actually see energy lines flowing around the landscape. I don't even need dowsing equipment anymore. I can see this stuff. Okay, I interrupted uh, you there. So, you, sorry, you're in the king's chamber. Uh, it's it's uh, dark, it's quiet, and these uh, it's dark tall, and quiet. slender, robed <laughs> figures literally coming out of the rocks, surrounding yeah, they, you. They surrounded us, and then they went back into the stones again. Okay. And uh, uh, we took turns going into the lying in the sarcophagus for a few minutes because we figured we might push it, uh, you know, push our luck. And uh, I'm six foot five. The next guy with me is about six foot. Then we have a gentleman who's five foot six and five foot two. So we're different heights. And uh, after about 20 minutes, the lights come on. A very excited Arab gentleman is screaming downstairs. Obviously, we weren't supposed to be doing all of this without paying huge amounts of backsheesh. So we quietly went downstairs, you know, gave him a little bit of backhander, and then walked out completely dazed. Our group is in the bus waiting for us, for trying to figure out what's been going on. And it's quite clear that four of us have had a very dramatic experience, and we weren't talking. And uh, I could see the other guys wanted to talk, and I said, well, did you see what I saw? And the other guy says, those guys that just came straight out of the stones, dressed in white, very tall, and we were completing each other's sentences. Hmm. Now, the chances of four grown-up men uh, coming up with this by coincidence, is very, very uh, impossible. So clearly we had a shared experience. We all saw this. And the funniest thing is that when we said, uh, when we talked about the experience in the, in the sarcophagus, every one of them said, 
that sarcophagus fit me exactly like a glove. It was exactly my length of my body and my width. Now, how do four people of different sizes fit perfectly inside the same uh, red granite box? That's what I want to know. And I can tell you to this day, Richard, that I don't know where I went in five minutes, but I'm still recalling all kinds of information. And in fact, I ended up uh, writing a lot of it into uh, my, my previous book, which is uh, The Divine Blueprint. And that's where a lot of that knowledge came through. And basically, that, that was what I was asking in the chamber. I said, I need to learn about this. I need to know how to use it. And how can I teach this to other people? And of course, eventually, it gets downloaded. And I just download it on paper. And there you go. So that's you know, a pretty good example of just how it works. It's fascinating. I don't need to tell you, obviously. I'm a, I'm a Christian, uh, Orthodox Christian, and there is obviously uh, that part of this mystery school or this this initiation that is sort of tainted with the uh, the occult brush. You know that this is uh, the devil's work, uh, and that. Ah. <laughs> so, I mean, how do you? Uh, I mean, I don't know what your 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 upbringing was in terms of uh, religion, but let me ask it this way: We we know that Jesus spent some time in Egypt as a child. Uh, uh-huh. Is there a connection that maybe Christians aren't aware of between what the ancient Egyptians were trying to do and what Jesus was trying to do? Oh, it's huge. It's absolutely huge. And I think, I mean, I was raised as a Catholic. I didn't have a choice. I was, I was born in Portugal. And uh, we either were Catholics or basically were devil worshippers. <laughs> um, so I've actually come to, I mean, I, I hated Catholicism for a long time until I began to understand the origins of Christianity and how it preceded Jesus by a long, long way. And I began to uh, take a huge interest in John the Baptist, who is, uh, according to the Gnostic Gospels, the true Messiah, because there was two of them. There was the priestly Messiah and the kingly Messiah. And Jesus was supposed to take the uh, the, the part of the kingly Messiah. And John the Baptist's uh, lineage was, of course, the priestly Messiah. And they had all the power. Now, we know that, of course, John gets his head chopped off, uh, very unfortunate. And Jesus takes up the power. Now, this is where the Templars and the Ascends come into the picture, because when uh, the, uh, the scrolls were discovered under Temple Mount, and there's good evidence to suggest that the Templars did find the Essene scrolls, because they then undertook an obligation to reenact all of those uh, mystery schools that the Ascends had been doing, and that was validated in the scrolls that were found in 1947 in Qumran. Uh, Clearly, the uh, early Christian church in Jerusalem uh, was also working uh, on the Ascend principle because the Nazarites or the Nazarenes and the Ascends were essentially uh, part and parcel of the same sect. So they were following some very old ritual traditions about raising the dead. And this is where the complication comes in with the Gnostic Gospels and the Orthodox Gospels, because the Catholic Church, as we know, and this is very documented, uh, they basically uh, heavily edited these Gospels. So they were put, trying to put forward a certain idea of how things work. They tried to make uh, turn uh, Jesus into a god, uh, whereby all the Gnostic people were saying, well, he was just an ordinary man who was fulfilling a certain mission to show how the mysteries are enacted uh, in terms of sal- uh, saving yourself and your soul while you're still alive. Um, even the Quran states that Jesus was never actually, never died on the cross. It was a figurative death. And the Ascends claimed exactly the same thing in the Gnostic Gospels, that uh, the, uh, the whole idea of resurrection was a, a figurative resurrection. You are going from the dead and you're rising as a new soul while you're still alive because you come into the understanding 
of how things work. And in fact, there's a wonderful, uh, actually, there's two wonderful quotes from the Gnostic Gospel of Philip, which is now published, which actually ridicules, uh, as they call them, ignorant Christians who take the resurrection literally. And he quoted it and he said, anyone who believes in resurrection as a literal truth is a fool. And only a few paragraphs later, he says again, those who say they will die first and then rise are in error. They oh. must receive the resurrection while they live. All right, I've got to take a time out. We'll come back and pick up on that most contentious point. Freddie Silva here on The Conspiracy Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. AM 740. And we are back with Freddie Silva, the legacy of the ancient Egyptians and the art of raising the dead, spiritual alchemy. Uh, we were talking about the um, Jesus missing years, I suppose, in Egypt. And uh, uh, Freddie, uh, you and others uh, believe, and I guess the Gnostics believe, that uh, uh, what Jesus went through this mystery school, learned this whole process, and this was the message that he was trying to uh, deliver, I mean, you know, without getting into a, uh, obviously a, a sectarian battle here. <laughs> um, but but well, I, and that's I, the whole point, Richard, though. I mean, you go back to your original point mm-hmm. uh, about the Catholicism and Orthodox Christianity. That's the whole point. And I believe it actually validates the Christian ethos of uh, the fundamentals of Christianity as being a very honest faith. Uh, that the original Gnostic Christians totally understood that everything that was being said was figurative. It wasn't meant to be taken literally. And I think the Gospel of Philip actually uh, illustrates that quite nicely. Um, but the, the Egyptians uh, had a concept of an afterlife. They believed in an afterlife. Oh, totally. Absolutely. Uh, and also when the body, when you actually get to the point where you're, when you're in your deathbed, you should confess all your sins, you say what you regret, and you try to be honest with yourself so you don't carry this burden into your afterlife. But before that, uh, I mean, that was a literal death at the end of your life. I mean, we all have to accept that. But before that, there were also the uh, initiate schools, which, which taught you to, how to actually live while you were still in the physical body. And that was the whole difference between the people who were the... Uh, 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 the walking dead, as they call them, or the people who are actually enlightened uh, and the, uh, the ones who had risen from the dead. And this was to be experienced while you were still alive. So clearly, there was some kind of indoctrination into working out how you could actually live your, your life as a soul in a body and be totally self-aware. And I believe that's where the spat came in with the uh, later uh, Orthodox Christianity and the original sects of, like the, the Ascends and the Gnostic Christians and the Cathars and the Templars. And the thing that links them all and why they're all exterminated by the Catholic Church is that the one, the one thread that links them all is that they all maintained that you had to basically find a way to become self-aware while you were still alive. And that gave you self-empowerment. And it didn't require a middleman, it didn't require a priest or a bishop to tell you how to communicate with God. Your communication was completely direct. And I believe, uh, you know, just by reading and taking a, you know, without taking sides, just reading the evidence that's, that's presented, uh, I think that's a very good case. And in, and in fact, it actually accentuates the ethos of Christianity. It actually gives me a good respect for it. I just believe that the way that it's been portrayed by the office of the Catholic Church is incorrect if you look back at the evidence that's portrayed throughout the centuries. 
so what was the Egyptian uh, the Egyptian viewpoint of the afterlife. Um, um, there was, um, you know, the soul is immortal. Where does it go? Uh, if you're good, where does it go? If you're bad, what happens? Oh, they didn't judge either way. Uh, they just reckoned that uh, you basically had to atone before you actually left. You didn't want to carry any way into the other world. I think their understanding, if you just sort of, again, just uh, sit back and try to view it from their viewpoint, is that they didn't see right or wrong. This, they just basically uh, said that you come into an imperfect world, a, perf- a world that is very material, very heavy, uh, and yet your soul is trapped in here. It doesn't understand what it's come here to do. So the, uh, to try and learn some techniques that allows you to escape uh, the gravity of the earth and escape your body for a few moments, even if it's just lucid dreaming. Uh, and if you can come back with some understanding that there's a bigger life out there, then you can actually use these tools to live your life with correct action. And you get it wrong. Sometimes you'll get it right. You have a whole lifetime to learn this. But the trick was that when you die, you confess uh, all your sins and the things you got wrong. You declare the ones you got right so that when you go into the afterlife, your soul isn't heavy. It's not the sort of, It's not sort of bogged down by things that you should have done, shouldn't done, shouldn't have done, regrets and things. The idea was to have the experience and to understand uh, the experience that separates right action from wrong action. There was not so much of a judgment from a uh, creative God. It was more a personal decision to uh, hold yourself accountable for your own actions. So in other words, you took total responsibility for being down here. And the difference was that some people were able to do it with better understanding and more clarity than others. And that's what separated the ones who are in the inside group as opposed to the ones who are just the walking dead. We've got about a minute here before we uh, step away again for a break. But what, what, what was waiting uh, on the other side for the, for the departed soul? What, I mean, did they have a concept of, of, of heaven? Was it, uh, did they return to a singularity? What was it? Um, it, the, a lot of the inscriptions in the surviving the temples talk about uh, the process of uh, the soul becoming as a bright star, and uh, so that you basically return to the world of the gods. Uh, I believe that uh, it, it, it's sort of incomplete. I mean, we're sort of still picking up the uh, the pieces from uh, centuries of neglect and in, in the temples. So we, uh, our picture is very fragmentary. But if you start adding the Egyptian understanding to say the Tamil culture of southern India. Who is, uh, which is equally, if not even older than the Egyptian culture. I mean, they talk about temple cities that uh, uh, survived or didn't survive a major deluge, which is back in 9000 BC. And these things are going on to 15,000 BC, which are now under the ocean, and they've Listen, been found there. Got to take a so, quick time out, uh, Freddie. When we come back, we'll continue on that point, and then I want to find out about the pyramids. Why were they built? Why did they look the way they do? Why do we find pyramids now all over the world? Back with Freddie Silva as we discuss the legacy of the ancient Egyptians here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Freddie Silva is here, one of the world's great authorities on uh, metaphysics and one of the uh, most sought-after international speakers uh, in this regard. And uh, Freddie's website is www.invisibletemple.com. Freddie, these... The, the pyramid, uh, I mean, did these, did these uh, initiations, these ceremonies take place inside the pyramid themselves, or were there other temples that they used? There are a number of temples, and uh, the evidence seems to suggest that there was a, an initiation process whereby you began somewhere further down the Nile, and uh, you'd spend uh, a goodly time down there learning and being indoctrinated into the secrets of the mysteries. And uh, if you were clever enough and smart enough and you understood all of this, they would basically uh, pack off your lunch pail up to the next temple. And slowly, over the course of about 10 years, you'd slowly work your way up the Nile uh, from temple to temple. You'd learn do a different experience, a different part of the knowledge at these temples. And the big prize, of course, was the uh, Giza Plateau. And uh, it seems from the descriptions uh, in the uh, pyramid text that the, uh, the big pyramid, of course, was the House of Osiris. And you only have to look at the house of the myth of Osiris to understand what that is all about. It's, it's an initiatory process of a guy who is murdered by 72 people. And it makes you wonder, why does it take 72 conspirators to actually murder a guy? You know, there's, there's something about the number there, which is mm-hmm. very uh, re- revelatory. Um, and, uh, of course, he is the one who basically goes into the afterlife. He dies. His wife, Isis, uh, was not pregnant by him before he died. So the evil brother Set takes over the land, and of course the whole kingdom goes to to ruin. So basically, uh, Isis breathes life into the parts of uh, Osiris's body that were all chopped up. Uh, she fashions him a new phallus made of gold and uh, utters a sound to him, and he comes back to life. Uh, the symbol of which, of course, of his resurrection is the palm tree, which is the uh, the, the palm tree, of course, being of course the uh, the symbol of Jesus's entry on a donkey back into Jerusalem. Uh, so you can see the connection there between the two. There's a ritual connection here showing that uh, Jesus also has, seems to have undergone a kind of uh, metaphorical resurrection, so to speak. He was indoctrinated. So the House of Osiris, of course, the, uh, the, the main house was always associated with the Great Pyramid of, of Giza, which is, seems to be sort of a portal. And uh, by which time, if you're an initiate of the mysteries and you spend 10 years doing all this stuff, You'd learn how to work in and out of the body. You could take yourself out of the body at will. You were able to come back as a soul. And uh, there are people who've actually foolishly gone into the Great Pyramid to do out-of-body experiences without understanding what happens. And there have been deaths there. And this is why you'll find the pyramids get shut down for several months, because the authorities just look at these people, these uh, what they call silly tourists, just basically doing silly things. Uh, it's a very, very important place, and if you get your your work done correctly, you can have an extraordinary experience. Or a dangerous um, one, I guess, if you don't know what you're doing. Absolutely. And the, in fact, when I was writing the material and writing about my experience in the Great Pyramids for the, uh, for the Divine Blueprint, I actually looked around for anybody else who may have had a similar experience, and I had a book from the 1920s, or actually, I think it's before that, 1910, from a, uh, a guy called Paul Brunton, who, uh, as a, uh, an Englishman, he... He was disillusioned with the Victorian era of materialism. Can you believe that? I mean, even back <laughs> in the Victorian era, they were disillusioned with materialism and industrial culture. And he went walkabout. Uh, he also had an experience in the Great Pyramid, and I hadn't read the book at, the, at this point. 
And he also saw exactly the same people I described in my uh, experience that came out of the, the stones. Uh, he had the advantage of having the pyramid to himself and throughout for the whole night. And he claims to have actually seen other chambers. Uh, and he was also told that certain chambers in the pyramid, which they said that most of the pyramid is actually hollow, uh, uh, these chambers are not meant for you. They're meant for other initiates who uh, have a different journey to you. Uh, so you can only go so far in this understanding because you still have a lot to learn. And then, bang, he's back in his body. And, uh, you know, the, he walks out pretty much like I did, completely mesmerized by his experience. Well, what, so so it, what were these entities? I mean, what, do, you, do you have a handle on that yet? I, it seems to me, I mean, I have a, uh, some good friends who are some very, very good trance mediums, and uh, I know they're good because the information that they give us under trance is uh, often not found in maps, and yet we'll go and look for the coordinates of uh, temples that they give us, and, that, and these buildings are there. And uh, even the police and the, uh, the British military go and knock on her door to help, her, uh, to help them with their problems, and she has a, a near 100% record of solving out the police's problems. And uh, I asked her this information, and uh, when she was on the trance one day, and she said, well, basically, it's just the energy of the entities of the priests that were there from many thousands of years. I mean, the, 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 the stone is the key, and the geometry, the way it's all laid out, is the key. Uh, if you look at uh, all the sacred sites around the world, and I've looked at a goodly amount of them, they seem to have chosen the, the stone very carefully. And if you look at the, uh, the type of stone that they chose, sometimes they've carved these rocks from 400 miles away, and you think, well, why? Well, they used a specific type of quartz in these rocks, and it's the kind of uh, quartz that we used to use back in the early uh, days of radio to actually conduct radio signals. Hmm. So quartz... Your crystal radio set, yeah. Exactly. The stone remembers, and your intent, as we now know, is an electromagnetic packet of information. And if you can carefully guide that information and that uh, intent the building will recall certain things. So it's as if the actual energy of, of the spirit body of the priests is still held within the walls of some of these places. And that's why people see ghosts sometimes. Uh, they're actually seeing the uh, residual energy of the people who work there. So in a way, it's magic. But when you think about it from this particular point of view of what we know now know, uh, it's actually a, a very intense spiritual technology. And that's why the temples are built in a certain way. Why? Each pyramid has a different slope angle, you may notice, and each one of them induces a different effect on the viewer, and that's precisely why. Uh, the Bent Pyramid is one of my favorites. I mean, uh, orthodox archaeologists will tell you it's a mistake. Um, I think the body of evidence clearly shows that the Egyptians didn't make mistakes. And uh, there's a very clever gentleman, and I tried to remember his name earlier on today for another interview, and I still can't remember it. Um, he actually worked out that the slope angles of the, Great Pyramid, uh, of the Bent Pyramid when you apply a, a cosine and a tangent to the values of those slopes, it means that the bottom part of the pyramid unfolds as a pentagram and the top as a hexagram. That's not Robert Boval, is it? Uh, it wasn't Robert Boval, no. no. It was somebody else. And I, 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 I doubt if I will remember hmm. his name by the end of the interview. I, right. I credited him in the book, for sure. Um, so this may not mean much to most people until you start looking at the idea that the temples follow the law of correspondence. They correspond to natural laws and the laws of the human body because they are supposed to be intermediary places for both. Well, if you look at human DNA and the crystalline structure that makes human DNA, we are a bunch of crystals held together by pentagrams and hexagrams repeating again and again. So the slopes of the pyramid, of the Ben Pyramid, literally reflect our, the geometry of our DNA. But you take it another stage further, 
if you look at the actual uh, geometry of the Earth, uh, or at least the analog of the geometry of the Earth, you will find that the, the numerical value of the, the orbit of the pole, and in other words, the way that the pole rotates over its axis over one great Earth year, which covers 29,920 years, if you divide that by the relative nautical miles of the equator at 21,600 miles, you get a ratio of 5 to 6. So that is the numerical interpretation of the pentagram and the hexagram. So the Ben Pyramid essentially is a mirror image of the geometry of the Earth and the mirror image of the DNA in people, and that's why it affects people to that degree. You're looking in the mirror, and each pyramid will have a completely different slope angle. Each one of them has a different feel, and they'll do something very different to you. And yet we see pyramids now all over the world. They've been discovered in Yugoslavia. We've seen them in Central America. Is there an underlying connection? Oh, it seems to me that... Uh, we had a shared commonality of knowledge at some point in some very distant past. Uh, we have dolmens all around the world as well. I mean, uh, and according to orthodox archaeology, all of these cultures were never supposed to have even known each other, and yet we have dolmens in Korea, in China, in India, in, in England, uh, everywhere. So obviously there was some pivotal point where all this information came from. And I keep coming back to the um, civilization that lived at one time in the south of India called the Tamil culture. And uh, if you look at a lot of their transcripts, which uh, talk about ancient academies that were um, uh, sunken under the sea by transgressions of the ocean, as they called it, uh, they talk about all these ancient academies that were ruled by creator gods. Uh, this was a time before builder gods which were the people who survived this catastrophic flood. Um, the creator gods were much bigger, much taller, and they compared them to gods because they were not just bigger people, but also they were intellectually large as well. And they claimed that they got all their information, that, that the information that survived these cataclysmic events in the earth came from them. And we don't know where they got theirs from, but it seems to me that there are certain points of commonality because they're shared all around the world in the way the temples are located, the way they're built, the way they're constructed, the types of materials. Uh, you can find the same relationship around the earth. And I believe there was a linguist as well who located some of the um, etymology of the uh, language of Easter Island, which is this tiny speck in the middle of the Pacific, thousands of miles from any landmass. And yet you look at their sacred um, words that they use for spirits, uh, for example, uh, the ahau, and that it's exactly the same word in ancient Egypt as well. Now, how did the ancient Egyptians and the Easter Islanders connect? I mean, these people are so far apart. So it shows that there obviously at some point was a point of commonality where this spiritual technology was open to everybody. Uh, the qu big question is, of course, where is it and where did it come from? And why were the pyramids built? Uh, we, we know that they're not burial chambers. That's sort of long been um, Absolutely. dismissed. I've, I've uh, interviewed people who believe that they were uh, um, power, uh, um, power pumps, uh, giant batteries in, in one case. Someone had a theory that they were gigantic uh, ca capacitors, essentially. Why, why were they built? I think it's all of those and, and much more. Um, they were basically the ultimate uh, spiritual machines. I mean, they, uh, the sign of an advanced civilization uh, always lies in its ability to encode various levels of information in the simplest form possible. And you take something as a pyramid, which is a simple form, uh, and yet when you see it up close, uh, it takes you a while to actually find the adjectives to describe it. 
um, it's a, if you, when you start taking the building apart, you see that A, the measurements of the base and the slope, everything about it, all the numerical values, you can calculate all the Earth's proportions with that just by measuring the building. Uh, if you are a dowser or you work with Earth energies, you'll see how all of these sacred sites all are aligned exactly at the crossing lines of the Earth's telluric currents, uh, what some people call the serpent lines or the ferry paths. Uh, we now have magnetometers to show that uh, that is actually uh, true. Uh, of course, the magnetometers being $40,000 more expensive than your copper rods. Hmm. Uh, I prefer copper rods, uh, but you'll get the same result. Uh, they also uh, have certain geometries which will influence the uh, spatial values of the uh, air inside them, which means that when you put your body in these environments, you will feel very, very different. And the, uh, the Russians, uh, around about the time when the Berlin Wall came down, um, the KGB had a massive file on uh, esoteric practices. They actually looked at this information and they worked out that uh, what if it's true that if you stick a, a, a person in a building of a certain shape, it will actually have an effect on you. Well, back in the early 70s here in in Toronto, the home of the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, there was a a coach by the name of Red Kelly and uh, trying to get his team into the playoffs and he was touting pyramid power and everyone was walking around in Toronto with with pyramids on their heads. So, uh, Not a good idea. (laughs) No, in fact, uh, the Leafs didn't make the playoffs. We know razor blades. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, Freddie, uh, sadly, we are out of time. Uh, We've obviously just scratched the surface. Very quickly, where where can people go to, uh, to see this presentation? I know you did an online presentation uh, today. Where else can they go to see it? Um, you have to go to the uh, the Prophets Conferences website or the Great Mystery website, which is a link on my uh, on my tour page, on my lectures page, which is at uh, invisibletemple.com. And uh, if you want to read some of what I've actually done on there on here, uh, it's split between two books: uh, one's the Divine Blueprint, and one's the new book on the uh, Templars called First Templar Nation. And that gets more into the rising of the dead and the connections to John the Baptist. So plenty there for everybody for a long time. Freddie, always a pleasure, and let's uh, hope that the uh, the weather down there in Maine and along the eastern seaboard remains calm. Yeah, I can't quite see a large tree on top of my mini. It just doesn't seem to go together. <laughs> All right, well, just to be <laughs> on the safe... Pleasure, Richard. All right, thank you, Freddie. Thank Bye-bye. you. Freddie Silva. All right, let me get a quick plug in for um, Victor Vigiani, a good friend of the program, of course, from Zealand News Network. He joins me from time to time here on the show to discuss UFOs. And Victor uh, is going to be uh, lecturing at the Port Credit Library here in Ontario, the Port Credit Library, this Thursday, November the 1st, from 6.30 to 9 p.m. The topic, UFOs are real, the government knows, why don't you? Admission, $2. That's 20 Lakeshore Road, East Mississauga. Why don't you email Victor, and he can give you all the details. Zeland at simpatico.ca. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Halloween edition of the program. We will be talking about disembodied voices, spirits from, or uh, voices rather, from beyond the grave in uh, just a few moments when a member of the uh, EVP Society... The Ontario EVP Society uh, joins us. 
EVP, extra, uh, extra, or, uh, extra sensory. Sorry, let me try that again. EVP, extra sensory validation of the paranormal. Uh, but we'll actually be talking about EVPs as in electronic voice phenomena. And uh, Dennis Claveau, uh, who is the founder and lead investigator of the Ontario EVP Society, will be uh, playing some uh, what he believes are spirit voices caught on tape force in uh, just a few moments. Uh, let me just uh, say hello uh, to all our friends uh, along the eastern seaboard that are bracing for the Frankenstorm, they're calling it, uh, Hurricane Sandy, which is only one sort of element. Uh, you know, we have the Troika in, uh, in Europe. We have the Troika here in North America right now, uh, weather-wise, and that is Hurricane Sandy, which is likely to meet this uh, Arctic air mass coming down from the north and then coming in from the, uh, the west... Uh, we have this high-pressure system. All three of them meeting uh, perhaps late Monday, early Tuesday, here in Ontario anyway, uh, to cause the perfect storm. And in the U.S., they're saying, uh, the Coast Guard anyway, saying Hurricane, Hurricane Sandy could be bad or it could be devastation. Pelting rains, whipping winds, we've got mass evacuations, uh, so there's no doubt Hurricane Sandy, uh, at least uh, today, has already made a, a mammoth impact on the uh, the U.S. East Coast. And as I say, here in Ontario as well, in Toronto, 400 flights canceled at Pearson already. Scores of, uh, scores of other flights have been um, canceled uh, at the, uh, the island airport. And um, airlines are advising passengers planning to check in, check their flight schedules for delays or cancellations before, before going to the airport. Meteorologists here in Toronto say we'll feel the brunt of the storm between late Monday evening and early Tuesday. Rainfall, get this, rainfall between 50 to 100 millimeters and winds up to 70 kilometers per hour. Gusts of up to 100 kilometers per hour are expected. And the Canadian Red Cross is advising Ontario residents, listen up now, Red Cross is saying stock up on food, water and necessities enough for at least 72 hours. This includes at least four liters of water per person per day, non-perishable food, and a manual, a manual can opener. That's, <laughs> that's the worst, right? You've got all the food ready to go, all the, ta- the, tin, uh, ca- the canned goods, uh, and then you've got this wonderful electric can opener. <laughs> Not going to get the job done. Um, flashlights. I was running around the house tonight before I left for the station um, trying to round up all the flashlights. Every Christmas, as a stocking stuffer, the twins get a new flashlight. And uh, that lasts about two weeks. It gets thrown down the stairs or it drops. And uh, anyway, I keep buying flashlights. I I found all three of them, made sure they had fresh batteries. Uh, So we're good to go on that score. And uh, we've always got plenty of uh, fresh water and, and canned goods at the house. Anyway, so wherever you are tonight, I hope that you're safe. And um, uh, to all my um, listeners, not only here in Ontario and Quebec and those listening online, uh, but right down the eastern seaboard uh, and to our affiliates at WXI in Birmingham, WKAC in Huntsville, Alabama, KVNA in Phoenix, WIMO in Atlanta, and uh, all our, uh, our listeners in the Hudson Valley in Beacon, Kingston, uh, Peekskill listening on Hudson, uh, Hudson Valley Radio in Asheville, North Carolina on WZGM. Um, I hope you're safe. Uh, and listen, I would love to, uh, to talk to you by, uh, uh, via Twitter. You can, um, you can uh, 
drop me a line at Richard Serrett. Uh, sorry, twitter.com slash Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T. All right, let's uh, get into our uh, macabre, uh, shall we, and uh, discuss... This is a fascinating, a fascinating uh, a phenomenon, and whether you believe what is being captured on audio tape are actual spirit voices or something else, something a voice from another dimension, ETs. I don't know what's going on, but uh, I've heard thousands of EVPs over the years. Some of them are garbled and not so hot and uh, very difficult to understand. Some of them are clear as day, and uh, you're going to hear some of them tonight. And to tell us about um, uh, what he does at the Ontario EVP Society is the founder and lead investigator there, Dennis Claveau. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hello, Richard. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm well, thank you. The Ontario EVP Society, Extrasensory Validation of the Paranormal. Tell me about your group. Where are you, first of all? Certainly. Well, we are based out of Kitchener, Ontario. So, as the name states, we uh, we are in the in the uh, region here. Uh, we are a nonprofit group. Uh, we travel all over Ontario investigating claims of paranormal activity. Uh, so we don't uh, charge for our investigations, home or business. And um, uh, how many EVPs? First of all, before we get into that, what, give me your definition of an EVP, ex- electronic voice phenomena. What what is it exactly? Certainly, and th- there are many different uh, explanations about it, but the one that we go by is it would be a sound or a voice that was heard only on playback. It wasn't audible at the time it was captured, uh, so you couldn't hear it with the human ear when you were actually there, but on playback, it shows up on the on the audio recording. And um, where where are you gathering or or capturing these these uh, EVPs? Uh, what kind what kinds of locations? And it's actually really interesting because you'd think it would only be in uh, like really spooky haunted places, but we've actually captured them. Uh, well, in uh, in churches, we've captured them in brand new homes, and of course, the odd spooky place out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but it, it doesn't really matter what place we go to. It seems that uh, wherever paranormal activity is, uh, so are EVPs. So what do you, when you arrive at a location that is uh, alleged to be haunted or there's some sort of paranormal activity, you take your audio cassette recorder in there, digital recorder, whatever, and what do you do, like a bait and trap? Do you, do you, do you push record, leave it in the room and leave, or do you walk around the, the grounds in the building asking questions and hoping for a reply? Well, it's, it's all of the above. Uh, we do have several recorders going at any given time. Uh, we will leave a few stationary around the home. Uh, we will sit down and have active EBP sessions uh, where we ask questions and, and try and trigger a response. And we will have one in our hand walking around with us, so if we just capture anything ambient. The goal is to capture anything that could go off at any time because, uh, I'm sure as you would know, these things don't uh, don't operate like clockwork. So uh, the more ears, the better. And how common or rare is it to capture an EVP? Give me a ratio, for example. How how much tape do you have to actually record before you get an EVP? And that's an excellent question. And uh, I, I can use one location, uh, the Blue Ghost Tunnel in Niagara Falls, as an example. Uh, we've been there about six or seven times over the past two years, and we've uh, amassed a literally days' worth of audio and uh, we only have about uh, about 20 or so EVPs, which amounts to just a, just about two minutes. Uh, 
out of almost a week's worth of audio to go through. So a very, very small a uh, small amount that you actually get in terms of ratio. And when you listen, when you listen to them in playback, are you are you able to hear what they're saying at that point, or do you need to run it through some sort of a, a, a an audio enhancing program to clean it up, eliminate the background noise, uh, or do they do they present themselves pretty much the way that as they're recorded? And that actually does vary as well because we have had some EVPs that come clear as day. It sounds as if the person was in the room speaking right into the audio recorder. And we've had others that uh, require a little bit of cleaning up to actually hear what it says. Now, that might have to do with uh, the cert- like how far away it's being broadcast or uh, if it's actually interacting with the, with the machine itself. That's something we've yet to figure out, but it is an interesting, uh, an interesting angle on the EVPs themselves. Now, why are so? Why are they so often um, so garbled and, and muffled and difficult to hear? You would think that if a spirit, if that's in fact what we're dealing with, wanted to make itself known, uh, I don't know, they would take elocution <laughs> classes or something. They're just so difficult to hear so often. It's very true, and I think part of it is because it's not sound as we know it. Uh, part of it is if the sound was audible at the time, then our human ears would hear it. So it would have to be something different. Uh, part of my theory, now it goes into EVPs, is that electronic voice phenomenon is just actually that. It's a form of electricity. Uh, it goes through electromagnetic frequency that's interacting directly with the audio recorder. So that would pick up uh, on the microphone what we can't hear, but it comes through, it, 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 when, it when it does come through, it comes through, uh, jumbled and, and garbled and sometimes robotic sounding. Now, I uh, I spoke with a uh, an EVP researcher who lives uh, not too far from uh, up Barry Way here in uh, north of Toronto, mm-hmm. and he has an interesting theory uh, that the reason they sound these voices that is sound so garbled is they're I guess they're they're operating in a different medium. They're, they're actually existing in a different medium. I'm not sure if it's related to ectoplasm, uh, but uh, it's, you know, if voice travels differently uh, underwater uh, than it does in, in uh, you know, an, an oxygen-hydrogen type atmosphere, oxygen-nitrogen-hydrogen atmosphere. So he's theorizing that wherever these voices are coming from, wherever they are, there's some sort of a different medium in which they exist. And so that's why, you know, the voice is having to travel through that medium. Does that make sense to you? Well, I definitely agree. It, it does, it, it explains a lot of the discrepancies with, uh, with most of the explanations behind EVPs. Because if you look at it through history, uh, tape recorders and digital recorders only have a few pieces that are very similar. Uh, that being mechanisms in the microphone themselves. So whatever is acting as an electronic voice phenomenon, it would have had to have existed before all of this wonderful technology that we have today. So it could very well be a different form, a different medium that we can't hear, but it is interacting with the microphone, and that's what's being recorded. Dennis Claveau is uh, with us. He is the founder and lead investigator of the Ontario EVP Society, extrasensory validation of the paranormal. And when we come back, we'll play some spirit voices, allegedly.
Voices from Beyond the Grave. Here on The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. And it's our uh, Halloween edition of The uh, Conspiracy Show as we're hunkered down here at 550 Queen Street West in Toronto awaiting the arrival of the superstorm, the perfect storm, the Frankenstorm, whatever you want to call it, uh, the East Coast bracing for Hurricane Sandy, which is this rare hybrid uh, storm that's expected to bring a life-threatening storm surge to the mid-Atlantic coast. And, and uh, I believe the, uh, the death uh, tally now is somewhere approaching 70 individuals, uh, the most recent um, uh, deaths in the Caribbean, but... Uh, here on um, the mainland and and up up and down the uh, the eastern seaboard, people are busy fastening their hurricane shutters and trimming the wicks on their hurricane lamps and stocking up on water and so forth. We hope, um, as the U.S. Coast Guard said, this could be really bad or it could be devastation. Well, uh, let's hope that it's um, certainly not devastation and and maybe just maybe. Uh, the um, the bark will be worse than a bite, as, as, as often is the case. But um, meteorologists and uh, forecasters seem to be quite certain we are going to get slammed, certainly here in Ontario. We may get snow. Uh, so what does that mean for trick-or-treaters? <laughs> That's the least of our worries, of course. But I tell you, uh, North, uh, my little guy North, of course, is going to be Harry Potter. And uh, Zachary... Uh, no surprise to anyone in the family, is going to be a ninja. Any costume that would allow him to uh, adorn himself with any sort of weaponry. And, of course, a ninja has, you know, the throwing stars and the, the two swords across the back. Um, they're going to be absolutely devastated, though, if they have to, to wear a winter parka over their costume, co- totally destroying the effect, of course. Uh, but we shall see uh, what happens uh, Wednesday night. We may just stay in and bob for apples. All right. Uh, Dennis Claveau is with us, the lead investigator and founder of a um, rather interesting uh, group, the Ontario Society uh, of EVP. Uh, Now, we are going to play a clip here. We don't have them, Dennis, I apologize, we don't have them in any particular order. I'm guessing you've heard these uh, many times, so you'll be able to uh, sort of tell us what, what it is we're listening to. And we should also point out that if people want to listen to these, can they go to your website as well, Dennis? Can yes, they hear they them can. on the website? That's evpsociety.ca, www.evpsociety.ca. And um, so, Tim, why don't you fire the first one off here? All right, uh, Dennis. Does that one sound familiar? Again, that's kind of garbled, but we dirt. We definitely heard a voice coming through there. And I'll tell you what I heard. I heard someone saying something. She died. Yes, the, there was actually two voices: uh, one older man and one younger man, and they both said she died. Uh, interesting point was that actually happened after one of our team members had called out the name uh, Allie, which is one of our investigators. So they didn't like her very much, and I think that was their response. So, now, one of the things that I've 
sort of uh, learned over the years talking to paranormal researchers and ghost hunters such as yourself is sort of two theories as to uh, what these voices are. In, in some cases, what you're actually listening to is simply the, the residual sort of an echo, uh, the, you know, this residual energy left over after someone passes away that's maybe absorbed by, into a building and so forth. And so that, that voice really has no consciousness. It's just on sort of a loop, you know, it plays over and over. In some cases, though, these entities seem to have a consciousness. You can interact with them. For example, you put out a question, they deliver a response. What, are, what most often do you think you're recording? These, the spirit, this spiritual residue, these endless loops, or, or uh, spirits with, this, with a consciousness to them? I think the ones that we can hear audibly uh, are more so the uh, playback recordings, like the residuals. Right. Um, the ones that seem to interact with us, uh, that those come up more often on EVP, um, which is especially for the Blue Ghost Tunnel location, because there wasn't anybody that died in that area. So there, there was no, like, uh, there was no murder, there was no passing away. So to have, uh, have voices like that show up, it, it does strike an interesting uh, parallel for that as well, because it's more so the expectation of something there. So everyone's mental energy is actually manifesting something that's intelligent. And again, when you asked the question about, what about Allie, you heard nothing until you played the tape back later. That's correct. And we, we did not have the two individuals' voices in our team at all. Uh, those two people, we had no idea who they were. How do you rule out some someone playing a joke on you or, I don't know, radio interference? There must be certain protocols that you adhere to, scientific protocols. Well, absolutely. Uh, we do check out the locations uh, at, at depth when uh, it is in the daytime. We go through, make sure there's nothing wired up, and uh, make sure we're familiar with the area. Uh, and some locations are so remote that it, the chances of it being somebody out there playing a joke it is it is pretty slim, but we make sure that we have all of the entrances monitored at all times to make sure that there's nobody that can sneak in, and we do follow up. But we're we're fairly thorough with our investigations, so there's not really an inch of anything that that doesn't get explored when we're when we're on location. Dennis Claveau is with us, the founder and lead investigator of the Ontario EVP Society, extrasensory validation of the paranormal, and again their website is evpsociety.ca. Uh, Tim, let's, uh, let's fire up another one and play another EVP. All right, now, I definitely heard a male voice there, but uh, I couldn't make out what it was saying, or he was saying. Help us out, uh, Dennis. Certainly, and that one uh, actually gave me goosebumps listening to it again. It always does. Uh, that was captured uh, between myself and my senior investigator, Jim, speaking. Uh, we kept hearing thumps, and this was again in the Blue Ghost Tunnel. And there was a period of silence between us talking. I, I was there, so I knew, it was, I knew it was quiet. But on playback, you hear the man's voice, and it sounds like he's very quickly saying, you may as well start running now. Oh, dear. <laughs> Now I don't know, Tim. Are we? Are you able to fire that one again, or is that one gone? I don't understand the uh, the. 
Hard to say. I mean, I, I it sounded like something like what you said. You better start running now, although it's very short. Uh, yeah. There's also kind of a, a tinny quality there. Uh, it's almost as if in order for these spirit voices to become audible, they've got to be, they have to manipulate, I don't know, an electromagnetic energy or, we, you know, we often hear uh, um, that if, you've, if you're running a fan in the room or there's, uh, there's something that they can use and manipulate that sound. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Yes, it does, it does seem to be that they're manipulating some type of electric field because some of the EVPs that do come through, they either sound very electronic or very robotic. And so I think that's what lends to that theory. And how much is that attributed to you simply having to not manipulate the audio, but uh, clean it up, eliminate the background noise, maybe boost the levels? Uh, is, is some of it as a result of, of that? I would say what we go through, if we have to do all sorts of things and play it backwards, we don't count it as an EVP. If we can play it through on its normal capacity and we hear something strange, it either sticks right out to us or it takes a very, very small amount of changing, uh, like just clearing out the background noise to bring that out uh, further. Uh, we, anything else we don't, we don't count because that could be the program rendering it. We don't want to mistake that as evidence. Dennis, what do you think is going on here? I mean, are you certain that these are spirit voices? Could they be voices from another dimension? Could they be ETs? Uh, could they be sort of demonic tricksters? What, what, what do you think is going on here? I think that it's an entity that we don't yet understand. Uh, we're on the cusp of figuring out what is going on here. I think it's going to take some more, some more digging to find out exactly what's going on. It's the same thing where people are trying to, uh, I guess, find different uh, forms of a higher being. This could be the very same thing. One person's ghost is another person's demon kind of thing. So you don't necessarily believe that they are, in all cases, uh, you know, dis disembodied voices of, of, of the dead? Well, in this particular instance, and, and this is why I use the Blue Ghost Tunnel as an example, there are no reports of anyone dying in the tunnel itself. It's, it's just a train tunnel. Uh, and all, there have been deaths surrounding the area, but nothing in the vicinity of the tunnel itself. So for it to be a disembodied voice of someone who's passed away, I don't think that they would travel 50 or 100 yards to an abandoned tunnel where the, away from where they died. Um, I think what's happening in this particular location is actually a manifestation of everybody's fear or excitement or anger, regret, whatever it is. It's the mental energy getting a life of its own, basically. So that would be something separate from uh, somebody dying, but it would still be an entity in itself. All right, we'll uh, play another clip here in a second. Um, I'm not sure if we have time before the break. Probably, well, b before we do that, Tim, let me, I, I want to ask, uh, or I'm going I'm to throw the phone lines open here, and if anyone has um, uh, any form, if you've had, ever had any form of, of spirit communication, uh, I'd love to hear from you. We'll make the phone lines available. And if uh, you've perhaps even recorded an EVP, although we won't expect you to play it on the air tonight, that might be difficult. Maybe just tell us the circumstances 
um, under which you were able to record this ghostly voice and what the voice said and how you reacted when you heard it the first time. And we'll uh, also make the phone lines available as we batten down the hatches and prepare for the onslaught of Hurricane Sandy and this Frankenstorm. If you're anywhere in the affected area, up and down the eastern seaboard, uh, if you've got any news to report, if you're starting to see uh, some some heavy winds or rain or, God forfend, um, a flooding, uh, let us know what's going on where you live. And uh, we'll get to that um, during the uh, the rest of the hour here. And we'll keep Dennis Claveau with us as well as we continue to delve into uh, EVPs. Dennis is the founder and lead investigator of the Ontario EVP Society, Extrasensory Validation of the Paranormal. Let's play another one, Tim. That sounded like either a, a female or a, a young child. I'm not sure which. Dennis, okay. what's going on there? Now, that one was actually very interesting. And uh, if you have the chance to hear it uh, through headphones, it's, it's actually very clear. Um, what happened was we had brought a, a guest investigator to the Blue Ghost Tunnel. I'll try and make this quick so you can fit in a break. Um, but uh, she was reacting very strongly to whatever was in there. She started having panic attacks and got very excited. So we actually had to physically drag her out of the tunnel because she was in hysterics. And shortly after everyone had left the tunnel, because we had gotten out of there so fast, we'd left the recorder in the tunnel itself. And it sounded like somebody laughing at the fact that we had had left. And shortly after that laughter, there's a, a very, very nasty voice that says, you took her, uh, almost in direct reference to um, our guest investigator as well. So that one, that one sticks out for us. So you believe that she was saying, you, or uh, I say she, it sounded like a female voice to me. You believe this voice was saying you took her. Now in this particular EVP, it sounded like it was laughing. It was almost like a, an insane type of laughter. It wasn't, wasn't just like, ha ha. It was more like a, something a crazy person would laugh. laugh. Maniacal, Maniacal, yes. Maniacal laughing, yes. Do we have time to play that one more time, Tim? No, he's no. giving me the uh, the nod. Uh, so we'll maybe we'll when we come back on the other side, we can play it again. Uh, so let's uh, we'll open up the phone lines. Anyone out there who's had any form of spirit communication? Maybe it was through a Ouija board. Maybe you actually heard a spirit voice. Perhaps it came through a medium. You went to see a medium. Or perhaps you've captured an EVP of your very own. Would love to hear from you. Thunder Bay to the Carolinas, Maine to Minnesota. We're talking EVPs and Hurricane Sandy here on The Conspiracy Show. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. And welcome back to our Halloween edition talking about uh, EVPs, electronic voice phenomena. These are uh, voices or, in some cases, animal sounds. Uh, could be a pounding that are caught, caught on an audio recording device. Uh, now, whatever you may think, whether you believe in ghosts or not, there's something definitely going on here. These are not, this, you know, Dennis Claveau has joined us, the founder and uh, lead investigator uh, from the Ontario EVP Society. And um, I don't know Dennis, but I don't believe he's perpetrating a hoax, nor do I believe the countless other uh, ghost hunters, paranormal researchers, uh, and individuals who capture these EVPs. Um, are, are, are perpetrating a hoax. The question is, what are they recording? What are they capturing? Is it the voice uh, or the sound of a disembodied spirit? Uh, is it radio interference? Probably not. Um, is it some unknown entity, an ET? Uh, I'm dubious about that one. Uh, could it be a demonic uh, entity? Possibly. Could it be some sort of residual uh, energy left over from whoever occupied a building or a house or a location. Perhaps, perhaps. Uh, but we're hearing these EVPs now for ourselves and make of them what you will. Uh, Dennis, let's, uh, are you good to take some calls here? Absolutely, yeah. All right, let's uh, weigh in with Jeff from Michigan. Hello, Jeff. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Jeff, are you there? you got to lock in uh, Jeff for me, Tim, if you could. Okay, uh... Yeah, uh, I had gotten off work uh, one night, and I was uh, living alone. My uh, uh, parents uh, had been uh, passed away for a number of years, and I was really curious about trying to get one of these Ouija boards to work. Well, there was a storm front coming in that evening, and I put this thing out, and I was taking a shot glass, moving it around, and I just couldn't get anything to work. Well, a lightning bolt hit and knocked the power out. So I was fumbling around looking for a candle or something to light it, with and uh, the telephone rang. Now I had one of these old uh, rotary phones, a uh, big black heavy rotary phone plugged in a wall, and I picked it up and the lights were still out. And it, man, it was just full of static. But through the static, I could hear a really strange, uh, really broken up voice uh, calling my name. You know, and I mean, it was like you know one of those movies where you hear like air escaping from a corpse or something, and it was coming out. Mm. And, uh, Really spooky, but that's all it was. So I, I thought it was a crank joke, so I'm on the line, and I'm hearing the static. I'm saying, okay, who is this? You know, who is it? And nothing. So I hung up, and um, the power came back on, and that that was just very strange, you know. So I don't really think it was anyone playing a prank on me, but, I mean, I can't be sure, but I don't think so. Uh, great call. Thank you for that, Jeff. Uh, Jeff, um, how are things in Michigan? Uh, what's the weather like there? Uh, we're getting into a cold spell, and they're they're forecasting uh, winds, uh, wind sustained winds of uh, maybe up to 20, 22 miles an hour, waves up to 20 to 25 feet coming up within the next two days, and wind gusts of 40 up to 58 miles an hour. And whereabouts are you? Are you on the lake? Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm at South Haven. 
South Haven. Is that south of Chicago? Uh, it's north of Chicago. It's north of north Chicago. It's north of Benton Harbor, south of Holland, Michigan. We're south of uh, Muskegon and Grand ah. Rapids. Oh, okay. So it's still a little calm. Yeah, it's just windy, cold, breezy, but it's supposed to change very uh, rapidly tomorrow and Tuesday. All right, uh, Jeff. Thanks for the call. Stay safe. You too now. Good night. All right. Uh, Dennis, um, what do you make of... Uh, I've heard reports over the years of people receiving these strange uh, uh, phone calls, phone calls from the dead, some uh, yeah. some believe. Have you ever investigated anything like that? It is a very strange phenomenon. Uh, it's certainly not out of the realm of what we're discussing here. Um, it, it certainly is an interesting phenomenon in itself. Um, now, the, the fact that entities and these beings could manipulate uh, electronics or... Uh, in this case, a telephone, um, it, and sparking that, of course, would be the uh, the lightning bolt. I would assume uh, it does. It does add a very interesting perspective on that. I had an. Uh, I, I I'm not sure if I should tell the story, Tim. You can vouch for me. This is not. Uh, this is a very strange coincidence that we, we would be talking about EVPs and then Jeff's call about the strange phone call. I have um, um, my um, cell phone in my pocket. And, uh, you know, my Samsung Android, just got it, not very familiar with it. And uh, I had the, the ringer turned down because I was in the studio earlier doing some work. And all of a sudden, I hear a voice coming from my pocket. And I recognize the voice. It's my bookkeeper. Uh, you know, we've been talking back and forth uh, in the last couple of days because it's, it's my tax time coming up. And he's... It happens, I'm not going to mention any names here, but it just so happens uh, his, his wife is very ill uh, in hospital. And um, uh, I believe she has, you know, pneumonia right now. It's, it's not a good situation, and my thoughts and prayers are with him and his family. But he starts calling out from my pocket. I hear him. He's calling out her name. He says, Mary, is that you? Mary, is that you? And I reach into my pocket and I realize it's my bookkeeper uh, on the line and I, I call out his name. He can't hear me. And I don't know what happened, whether I accidentally, you know, pocket dialed him or whether he accidentally dialed me uh, and when he didn't hear a voice on the other end. I don't know. Very strange situation. But uh, I just thought that was odd that we would uh, that would happen, and we're talking about uh, voices from beyond the grave tonight. Dennis Claveau stays with us. We'll continue to hear some more EVPs, and also from uh, callers in the uh, those regions affected by the oncoming Frankenstorm. Stay with us. The Conspiracy Show. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down, and it lands on the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zuma Radio, AM 740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zuma Radio, the new AM 740. The truth is not out there, it's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And we're talking about capturing ghosts' voices on uh, audio tape, or what are believed to be the ghosts or the voices of uh, the dearly departed. Uh, Dennis uh, Claveau is with us. He is the founder and lead investigator 
of the Ontario EVP Society, Extrasensory Validation of the Paranormal. They operate out of Kitchener, and their website is www.evpsociety.ca. Now, Dennis, can anyone do this? Could I just go home tonight, take my uh, my old Marantz uh, digital recorder, press record, leave it in a room, leave it in the basement, and um, you know, wake up in the morning and play it back and see what happens? Is it that simple? It is that simple. Anybody with the recorder, even... The old uh, tape cassette recorders, they can leave it in a room. Uh, if they think that there's spirit activity, if they think there's an entity there, uh, they can go ahead and ask any questions or just leave it overnight, uh, and they'll have to listen to the audio all the way through, of course. But if there is something there, then it, it may show up. Now, if you're looking at the recorder, let's say you're keeping an eye uh, on the, the VU meter, even though you don't hear the voice, do you see the VU meter move? And that is interesting. It's something that we're looking at. Um, we're looking at putting together. Uh, currently, my technical specialist uh, Michael is uh, looking at making a device uh, that will not only capture the EVP, uh, but it will also capture um, a number of different uh, readings from ambient ra- uh, ambient radiation to uh, any fluctuations in the EMF field, anything like that. So we can figure out exactly what's going on at a time of when an EVP is captured. All right. Uh, Tim, can we fire up another one? Let's hear another EVP. No question about what uh, the, the, the voice there is saying. Find me. Now, uh, you know, I've heard a lot of EVPs in my life. That's about the clearest EVP I've come across. That's a grade A EVP, Dennis. Tell me about the circumstances. Absolutely. And that, that's one of the, uh, the highlights of, of our EVPs. Um, this was in a brand new house. This house was about three years old in Woodstock, Ontario, in a new subdivision. Uh, we were doing a preliminary walkthrough. So it wasn't even part of the actual investigation. So we had left the audio recorder on the main floor. Um, the homeowners were in the basement uh, just giving, uh, walking us through and, and talking about different things that are going on in their home. Um, I myself was on the staircase between the two floors. Uh, my investigator, Graham, and uh, my inve- senior investigator, Jim, were both on the staircase with me. There was nobody on the main floor. Uh, we would have seen somebody walk in the room. We would have heard something. It was on the main coffee table, and it was ca- it was captured when everybody else was in the basement. So that one blew us away. This uh, recording sounds as if this entity, this ghost, saddled right up to the uh, the microphone. You know, took the microphone, put it right up to his or her mouth, and and spoke directly into the mic. I mean, this is not from across the room. This is not muffled. This is. I mean, you couldn't ask for a more clear 
Um, does that I mean is that an indication uh, of the strength of the entity in terms of the haunting? Uh, what does it tell you? Now that that was very interesting as well because in that location, one of our investigators was actually scratched, so it could it could directly uh, correlate to the strength of that entity. Alternatively, it could just mean that it's on a better signal than the other uh, the other spirit voices are. If you think of it like a radio station, if you're not fully tuned in. Uh, to AM740, you may not be hearing us very clearly, but you'll still hear us. But if you're tuned into the right radio station, then you'll hear us clear as day. So I think that might be at play, too. You mentioned one of your investigators was scratched. Tell me about that. Yes. Uh, our vest- investigator, Graham, during the investigation, uh, we were sitting in the basement. Uh, it was three of us. It was myself, uh, Graham, and the homeowner. Uh, we, Graham was sitting by himself on a soft leather couch. Uh, I was sitting... Uh, about three feet away from him on the ground, and the homeowner was sitting across from myself about 10 feet away. So we were in the pitch black. Um, We were just sitting there asking questions. It was very quiet. So I'd asked, and I started challenging. I said, you know what, we don't believe you. There's nothing here. You know, if if you're actually here, then you better do something. And ask and you shall receive. Uh, Graham said that he felt a burning scratch on his back like a cat just went down his back. So... I asked him to come over, and I looked through the camera's night vision. Uh, I lifted up his shirt, and I, <laughs> I nearly freaked out myself because, uh, sure enough, there were fresh scratches in two directions down his back. And this wasn't something he could have done himself because there were scratches beginning at the top of his left shoulder going all the way back down his, uh, down his back diagonally to his waistline. And then there was another one, that uh, a very broad scratch that started at the top of his neck, all the way down his all the way down his spine. So that one shook him pretty badly. Uh, he took a little bit of time before he came back to the team, but thankfully he's, he's still with us. Uh, which begs the question: I mean, your nonprofit. Um, I mean, is this something that you know? It, it seems to become almost this a, a popular hobby now with people. But I mean, people maybe not are not appreciating what they're they're messing with here. This, if you're talking about a demonic entity, for example, you could be opening up a door into a whole world of, uh, of pain and misery for yourself. I mean, what precautions do you take, Dennis? How do you know you're not bringing some of these things home with you? And that's, that's something that we, that we look at on every investigation. I mean, it's with, with any type of science. If you're going out into the unknown, uh, you have no idea what you're walking into. So we take precautions uh, in terms of uh, rituals uh, like... Uh, uh, grounding and shielding, things like that. We we borrow from uh, Native American rituals to other things that we read up on. Uh, we do have some very good friends in the psychic community that are able to teach us methods to kind of prevent these things from coming home with us. But with it not being an exact science, there's no way to definitively say if we're actually stopping this from happening or not. And have you, ha- have you actually brought uh, something home? Personally, I don't think so. Uh, I haven't had anything uh, come home with me, uh, thankfully. Uh, I haven't had any piggybackers, but some of our investigators have uh, almost been taken taken over, almost been possessed. They've certainly been influenced heavily. Uh, I wouldn't use the word possession because that's a pretty tough one, but uh, some of our investigators have, have been overcome by uh, strong personalities. Can you give me an example? Can you give me an example of that? Certainly. It was in uh, Drummond Hill Cemetery, actually. Uh, one of our investigators, Allie, she uh, 
had been overcome by a strong personality, she began acting erratically. Uh, she went away from the group, and, and you could see on her face it wasn't herself. And she would almost act violently towards some of the members when we tried to walk towards her, uh, to a point where one of our investigators, Michael, who's known Allie for, for a long, long time, uh, she claimed that she didn't know who she, she didn't know who he was, and she was going to call the police if she did if he didn't leave her alone. Uh, to which she replied, "It'd be a pretty strange way to explain, considering we're wearing the same shirt." But uh, she com- did not act herself whatsoever, and it took us uh, almost a couple hours to get her out of that state. All right, uh, Tim, do we have another one ready to fire? <laughs> So there we hear one of the investigators talking, and then over top of that, we hear that disembodied voice. What do you gather, Dennis? That voice is saying. And now that one was uh, that one was interesting as well. Again, back to the blue ghost tunnel. Um, that one sounded like a woman saying, I know that, who are you? Uh, it seemed almost in regards to what Ali was talking about, the graffiti and uh, different symbols on the walls. Again, what was the, the, the voice saying? It sounded like she was saying, I know that, who are you? I know that, who are you? It's, um, it's like they, they desperately want to be heard, known, um, uh, there's kind of a sadness in some of these, isn't there? I mean, like a. Uh, I mean, obviously these these are if they are passed on. There, there's yeah, if they're still earthbound, I guess uh, that would tend to suggest that they may have passed on uh, in tragic circumstances or there was something unresolved. Uh, but do you get a? Is there a, a sense of foreboding or sadness or tragedy uh, in these places where you capture these voices? In some of these places, uh, it, it's hard not it's hard not to have a predisposition when you're walking into it because you hear all the stories, uh, you hear all the rumors. But some of, when you're listening to the EVPs, I mean, it's it's very hard not to not to become emotional with some of them because some of them do sound so desperate, so sad, and uh, it seems almost like they're they're an actual personality that's trapped there. Uh, but it, it, it's too early to tell exactly what that is, so you have to. Keep that emotion in check when you're listening to it. Aside from going to these places, recording these EVPs, maybe in some cases confirming that there is some activity there, what else can you do for either the homeowner or these disembodied voices? Well, what we normally do, uh, we offer um, we offer the service of, of using the, the cleansing ritual, going through with, uh, with sage or sweetgrass. Uh, we can't 100% say this is going to do anything, I mean, in the past, we have alleviated some problems, uh, calmed down some activity. Uh, other uh, other examples would range from uh, offerings to an entity uh, using traditional tobacco or honey or whiskey, anything like that. Uh, anything that we can find either in Native American ritual or uh, early European ritual, we try to put that to practice because that seems to be the most effective method. Uh, but in terms of moving on, on spirits, uh, we do have some psychics and mediums that work with us on a part-time basis uh, that claim that they're able to move those spirits on to the next uh, the next life or the next world. But again, scientifically, it's hard to put that into uh, into context. Tim, do you have time for one more? 
Can we squeeze in another one? Let's hear another EVP. Not sure if that's a voice, Dennis. Are we hearing someone stomping their feet? What are we hearing here? Now, that one, uh, that one actually was, again, one of the more emotional ones. This was captured in Unity Church right here in Kitchener, Ontario. Um, we had done what we call dead time. So we had let three members in different parts of the church, completely alone, completely in the dark for an hour. As we were wrapping that up, uh, a, a group of us were in the prayer room. You hear us leaving. You hear us walking down the stairs. Uh, so there was nobody in the prayer room. There was nobody on the upper floor. The recorder in that room actually caught what sounded like a child's voice uh, saying, leave here uh, or leave us, something to that effect. And then it says, he'll kill you. So it's one of those things when I, when I first listened to it, it almost brought tears to my, it almost brought tears to my eyes because thinking in any capacity, children are, are trapped or left behind. That's always a sad thing. But it is. That's always <laughs> difficult to hear. I, I'm always as well moved by the, uh, the EVPs of, of children's uh, voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dennis, uh, thank you for joining me tonight. And again, it's uh, the Ontario EVP Society, Extrasensory Validation of the Paranormal, the website evpsociety.ca. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much for having me on. All right, Dennis Clavo. Thank you for joining us. Stay safe, stay warm, stay dry. Thank you to Tim Spreen for audio production and producing. And uh, I'll be back next week with a brand new show. Hope you'll be along for the ride. Our Gary Patterson, rock and roll investigator, will be with us to talk about the Paul is Dead rumor, uh, which got started about uh, 46 years ago uh, next month. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.